Over the past several months, multiple labor strikes have taken place throughout the United States as a result of workers being fed up with low pay, lack of benefits, and long shifts. While this might be the first time college-age students have seen something like this in their lifetime, labor strikes are not a novel concept. According to scholars of history, the first recorded labor strike occurred in 1152 BCE in ancient Egypt during the reign of Ramesses III. According to surviving documents, artisans who were tasked with building the king's burial chambers had gone several weeks without receiving an adequate amount of rations as payment. After several weeks of this, the workers decided that they had had simply enough and laid their tools on the ground and marched out of the burial chambers and to their local government officials to demand that they receive adequate food rations for their work. In the United States, while labor strikes did occasionally occur, they were a fairly uncommon thing until the birth of the Industrial Revolution in the latter half of the 18th century. While the Industrial Revolution allowed for goods that were once made one by one by hand to be produced in mass qualities by machines and factories, the working conditions in the factories were extremely dangerous and grueling. Workers worked extremely long days in dangerous conditions for very low pay. As a result, labor strikes became a common thing during this time. Now, you're probably wondering what labor strikes have to do with Barry College and our history. Well, what if I told you that in 1933, a labor strike occurred on this campus and received quite a bit of national attention, both negative and positive. The strike was inspired after a critical letter was published in the New Republic by a former Barry School for Boys student named Don West. Don West was born on June 6, 1906 in Glimmer County, Georgia to John Oliver, a farmer, and Lily Mulkey West, a school teacher. He was the oldest of eight children. Like his father before him, West seemed destined to work in the agricultural field, and he and his family were comfortable living a rural life for all of their days. A part of John Oliver's job as a farmer was to supply crops to neighboring towns. Whenever he traveled to neighboring towns or villages, Don would usually accompany him as his father's eager traveling companion, always eager to learn more about the world beyond their tiny town. As his thirst for knowledge grew, it became apparent to West's mother and father that of all their eight children, Don was the most likely to pursue a career outside the agricultural realm. In interviews given by Don later in life, he recalled that his mother was a strong influence in the development of his character, as well was his maternal grandfather, Asbury Kimsey Mulkey. West described his grandfather as a marvelous man who exercised a great influence on my early attitudes. Mulkey instilled in the young Don West the importance of tolerance, honesty, and independence. In addition to these values, Mulkey also stressed the importance of Appalachian values and the importance of community life. Another important aspect of West's childhood that greatly impacted him and his works later in life was the Christian faith. West's mother raised her children in the Baptist faith, but with a healthy suspicion of unbounded authority. According to A Hard Journey, The Life of Donald West, while Lily was a practicing Baptist, she did not find it necessary to coerce her children in the matters of faith. The person who had the most influence on West's faith was the genuinely human preacher of Glenmore County, Larkin Chaston. West later stated that Chaston's preaching was one of the main reasons he entered the ministry field. What was most appealing about Chaston's teaching was that he strongly emphasized that God was a God of compassion, love, and understanding. As a result of this teaching, West grew up in the Christian faith, but was more focused on the application of the Christian faith rather than focusing on the afterlife. 
Over time, West's beliefs became more aligned to the principles and theology of the social gospel, which focuses on the idea that Jesus was a revolutionary leader and does not focus as much on the Trinitarian doctrine and the divinity of Christ. While West's mother, who had only attended school for five years, taught West what she could, it became clear that the education in Glomer County did not provide a quench to West's ever-lingering thirst for knowledge. As a result of this, and a few other factors, the West family moved to Cobb County, Georgia. While this move caused economic burdens on the West family, it allowed Don West to advance his intellectual growth in school. However, West transitioned from the Glomer County schools to the Cobb County schools were not without struggle. When looking back on his early education, West recalls that he and his sister stood out greatly due to their extremely rural and Appalachian appearance. West was at first ridiculed by his peers due to his clothing, which consisted of overalls and bibs. However, he quickly gained respect from his fellow peers due to his great intelligence and athletic ability. West became a role model for his classmates. Despite the harassment that he had received for his Appalachian roots, West continued to wear his cultural heritage proudly. By the time West was 16 years old, he was determined to break the family cycle of working hard, long, brutal hours as a farmer. While he had independently explored different schools he could attend to further his education, his father expressed concern that the long walk from school and the exhaustion of working in the field all day after would be simply too much for him. Because of this, West's father told him that if Don was able to find the money for tuition, he would no longer have to worry about working in the fields after school. Now, it should be noted that during this time in this area, it was expected that boys stayed home to, and worked with their father until they were 21, so it was, it was definitely a break in tradition that West's father was willing to relieve his son of their duties long before he was 21. In 1922, after West secured a $75 tuition loan from his uncle and made arrangements to work while going to school, West was off to the Berry School for Boys. Now, most biographies of Don West take a second here to explain the history of Berry and who Martha Berry was, but I think most people listening have at least some idea of who Martha Berry was and why she started the school, so we're just going to dig into the school's origin just a little. The Berry School for Boys, known today as Berry College, was founded by Martha Berry in 1902. Martha Berry's main goal in starting the school was to give people who grew up around the Appalachian area a chance to be educated. While this did allow for people who did not have the chance to be properly educated to receive an education, some scholars, such as David Wisnott, who specializes on the history of the Appalachian region, have said that the cultural interventions like this would have potentially deprived mountain people of their cultural heritage in the name of academic and professional advancements. During his time at Barrie, West excelled both athletically and academically. However, despite this, he became increasingly displeased by the way that Barrie was run and what was being taught. He also formed a very strong disliking toward Henry Ford and was skeptical of Ford's and Martha Berry's true objectives. In an interview given later in life, he stated that there was no doubt in his mind that Ford gave so much money to Berry was because that Ford believed he was hoping to keep the pure attitude of the Mount people separated from any idea of, of organizing or forming unions. In addition to this, Wes also felt that Ford used the school as a, quote, recruiting station because Ford would frequently give summer jobs in Detroit to Barry students and, while they would work these summer jobs, they would be warned about the dangers of forming unions and were warned to resist them. 
On top of this, whenever any potential or current donor came to Barry, the students were required to welcome these people with, as Wes described, carefully coached smiles to appeal to the donor. If this wasn't enough to displease Wes and add to his growing skepticism about the school's true motives, Wes was also assigned to work as, in his words, Martha Barry's personal cleanup boy for a semester. As one can imagine, Wes took no pleasure in this role and described it as humiliating. According to his biography, it was this job, together with the Barry School's strict discipline, rigid demerit system, religious piety, and careful separation of the sexes, that filled this young rebel with hostility toward the school and the cultural intervention it represented. Now, the reason for West's departure from the Barry School still remains a little murky. While some records indicate that he left the school on his own, other sources state that he was expelled. In addition to debate over if West was expelled or if he left by his own will, there are also two very different accounts for what served as a boiling point for West. The first explanation for West's departure is that he left Barry shortly after he organized a protest in response to the firing of the Reverend Melville Gurley, a chaplain and a faculty member he very much admired. According to several sources, Gurley was accused of, quote, fraternitizing with the student body. Despite these accusations, there was a very strong negative reaction to his dismissal, especially from West, who had considered him his mentor. Three Barry students left, including West, left Barry in protest against the treatment of Gurley. The other version of the story is that West left Barry after he expressed dismay over the fact that a viewing of the now known to be extremely racist film, Birth of a Nation, was shown at Barry. As a countermeasure to the film being shown at Barry, West organized a protest, and according to West's own recollection, he said some pretty sharp things. Regardless of the reason for West's departure at Barry, it is agreed that West departed Barry in 1926. After his departure, West took a job with a Southern Bell telephone company, stringing wires from Gainesville to Tallow Falls up through the North Georgia mountains. After working here for a little while, West decided it would be in his best interest for him to complete his college degree. According to West, he hitchhiked up to Lincoln Memorial University in East Tennessee and spoke with the school's dean. To quote from an interview with West, I told him the story. I said, I'd like to go to college, but I don't have any money. I said, I've got a total of $1.65 in cash. Well, he said, are you willing to work? I said, I've never known anything else but work. I'm not afraid of work. So he says, if you're willing to work, we think you can make it. So I did everything from melt piles, dig ditches, to cut corn, to carry laundry, and wash dishes and pick chickens. Everything you can conceive of to get through college. It was during his time at LMU that West realized he wanted to pursue a career in ministry and centered many of his extracurriculars around any of the religious opportunities and activities that LMU had to offer. Academically, he focused his education on literature and writing. It was also during this time that West met his future wife, Connie Adams. He also made friends with like-minded people such as Jesse Stewart and James Still, both who would go on to be well-known writers of the Appalachian culture. While West found LMU's rules and regulations more lenient than the rules and regulations at Barry, he still found himself frustrated with some of the faculty members from LMU, especially the faculty members that were from northern states. West felt that many of them did not respect the culture of the Appalachian people and viewed them as culturally inferior. After being vocal about this, West was asked to attend an LMU Board of Trustees meeting to offer any suggestions that he had. He offered them a list of reforms for faculty members to take part in. 
Following this, West also hosted a protest where he gave a fiery speech to students about how, according to him, the administration of LMU had, quote, callously treated the Mount people and devalued the Appalachian cultural heritage. Following this protest, West left LMU for the time being. Once again, it's not totally clear if he left by his own voice or if he was expelled, but after a little while, it appeared that either the LMU administration or West had a change of heart because West did up, end up returning to LMU and graduated in 1929. Following graduation, West looked for a place to continue his education in religious studies, eventually deciding to attend Vanderbilt. Like he did with the dean at LMU, West discussed his willingness to work while attending school and was able to talk himself into attending Vanderbilt. During his time at Vanderbilt, West worked in the school's cafeteria and also coached baseball in addition to other youth-related activities. At this point in West's life, he was already very well-read on the subject of the social gospel and had immersed himself in the works of prominent liberal theologians such as Alva W. Taylor and William Uphaw, the former who was a professor at Vanderbilt and during West's time at Vanderbilt had West as a student. Taylor greatly impacted West's thinking and time at Vanderbilt. West specifically was inspired by what he learned in Taylor's Christian ethics course. In said course, Taylor would discuss his involvement in support of the Union strike occurring in such states such as Tennessee and Kentucky. This inspired West to write his senior thesis under the direction of Taylor on an area in Kentucky that were greatly affected by the Union strikes. According to West's biography, the teaching of Alva Taylor were key factors in moving West toward Christian socialism as the solution to the problem of the disposed of Southern Appalachia. While researching for his senior thesis, West became very intrigued by the Danish school systems and saw it as a potential model for how people of the Appalachians ought to be taught. In 1931, he accepted a scholarship to study the concept of the Danish folk school in Copenhagen and Elsinore. During his time abroad, West immersed himself in the Danish school system. Specifically, he spent several months studying at the International People's College in Elsinore, where he was deeply impressed by what the Danes had done for people that were, quote, illiterate and oppressed, and how they brought them up to high dignity and cultural development. Upon returning to the United States in the fall, West hoped to apply the Danish folk school methods and models to the needs of the Appalachian people. It was also during this time that West began publishing his works of poetry, Crabgrass, which caught the attention of several of his alma maters. The Vanderbilt Alumnus Magazine published a feature on his literary accomplishments and celebrated these achievements. In addition to receiving praise from Vanderbilt, he also received praise from Barry in their alumni magazine. The Barry Alumni Quarterly noted that West's work was attracting widespread attention and that West was a model for Barry students. Martha Berry was impressed by West's accomplishments and even invited West to come back to Berry to do a poetry reading. Now you're probably thinking that after West accepted an invitation to come do a poetry reading at Berry, all of West's negative views of the Berry schools was water under the bridge. However, you would be wrong. Very, very wrong. As a matter of fact, West was about to become one of Martha Berry's biggest worries and, and source of the school's first major negative press coverage. While West was complimentary of Barry when he visited the schools and even had a meal with Martha Barry, his opinion of Barry had clearly undergone a major transformation in, by 1933. That year, West published a letter in the progressive magazine, The New Republic, titled Sweatshops in the Schools. As one can, de can deduct, West was highly critical of the Barry schools in this letter. 
and I'm going to read a passage from the letter. Recently, there has been a significant student strike in the Barry schools at Rome, Georgia. Barry is a school for poor whites which parades itself as a great philanthropic and humanitarian institution. The students pay their tuition by working during four summer months. Before the Depression, they were paid from 16 to 18 cents an hour, working 10 to 12 hours a day at manual labor of the hardest soft, some of it semi-skilled. This summer, however, the authorities reduced the working students to this disgracefully low wage of 10 to 12 cents an hour, while tuition remained the same as before and the prices in the school store where students must buy their supplies were raised considerably. Resenting this injustice, the students went on strike, demanding enough out of four months' work to pay eight months' tuition and a reduction in the school store prices. The strike was ended when officials promised to, en to endeavor to meet the demands and not expel students for striking. Since they returned to work, students report that the authorities are, are holding the club of expulsion over their heads. I am an alumnus of Barry, and I know too well the reality that lies behind their fine story of poor mountain boys and girls. I think the public should be told the nature of this and other missionary institutions with which the South is cursed. In addition to publishing, publishing this very critical letter, West also worked with current Barry students to create a pamphlet in which they outlined their demands for the Barry schools. Here are some experts from the pamphlet. We, the students of Barry High School, with due appreciation from the original purpose of Barry, do feel that we are treated unjustly by the administration, that our rights of self-expression are curbed, that we are governed in a very autocratic and childish manner, and that we are underpaid for the labor we do, receiving 10 cents to 12 cents an hour for manual labor. On August 28th, the entire body of students protested these working conditions by walking out on strike. We were striking primarily against the very low wages paid for our labor. The school had lowered our wages from 16 cents an hour to 10 cents an hour, but tuition was not lowered. We resent this injustice, and we, the students of Barry High School, do hereby set forth our demands. We demand, one, the recognition of a student organization representing the student body. Two, that a committee elected by the students be consulted of all matters pertaining to student interest, especially the expulsion of students. Three, that either tuition be lowered or the wages be raised. Four, that students be allowed to hold two mixed socials every month. Now, this pamphlet wasn't just passed around Barry. It was sent to people and organizations around the entire United States. Letters were sent to other colleges and places such as the Socialist Party of America, the International Brotherhood of of electric workers and to Franklin Roosevelt, the current president of the United States. Many wrote back to Martha Berry or to Grady Hamrick, the principal of Berry at the time. The letters ranged in opinion, with some applauding the students for taking a stand, while others were very critical of what West and the students had done. One of the letters critical of West came from his former professor and mentor at Vanderbilt, Alva Taylor. In his letter, Taylor wrote, Don West is no protege of mine. Such a suggestion would insult him. He had gone from radical socialism to communism and gets more temperamental as he goes on in his propaganda. The young people at the Highlander School, where West had worked, found working with him impossible. He seemed to have a smoldering temperament that broods over the wrongs of working people, coupled with a highly individualistic ego that makes patient working with others or any teamwork impossible. 
The last time he was here, he denounced Vanderbilt, the School of Religion, ministry students, and the teachers as tendered feet and white-livered. I have labored with him to no effect. He gives his time and energy to teaching his mountain people socialism and does it without money and never knows one week where his living will come from next. So it appears that even the people that Wes looked up to earlier in life had had enough of him. Despite encouragement from some, Martha Berry was very worried about the school's reputation and decided to take matters in her own hands. She wrote to several of her friends and donors her version of the story. In a letter written on Martha Berry's birthday in 1933, she wrote, Perhaps you have received a letter which is supposed to have come from the graduates and students of Berry schools. Don West, a student who was expelled from Berry, has turned socialist and is sending out this letter and other propaganda in his revenge against the school. In the October 4th issue of the New Republic, there is an article written by Don West and is now circulating the newspapers and our friends with his literature. I hope you will read the letter in the Republic and write letters of protest to the editor of the magazine. The students are all loyal and intensely indigenous at all the, of this propaganda coming from the outside. I'm enclosing copies of letters we have received. We really are so greatly blessed at Barry, and everything has been going well until this trouble came up. Faithfully yours, Martha Barry. As late Orda Dickey wrote in Barry College of History, the exact details of the strike remain murky. Some sources stated that all of the students at the high school went on strike. Others suggest that the vast majority of students, 96 out of 100, were involved in the strike. And some sources suggest that it was only a handful of students that went on strike. Regardless of the exact number of students that participated, it is clear that this event, along with the letter published in the New Republic and the distribution of the pamphlets, caused a great deal of stress for Martha Berry. While she wanted to continue to write letters and fight the claims that were made by West, her close friends advised her to step away from the situation in hopes that the situation would diffuse itself. And diffuse itself it did. Students generally seem to have emerged from the storm with feelings of even greater loyalty to the institution. Most students of that time who participated in the Barry on-campus work program thought they received a full educational value for their labor. In fact, many of the students from that period considered the work program to be one of their fondest memories of Barry rather than just unjust labor. And what about West, you may ask? Well, it's safe to say that his radical beliefs were never really tamed. He founded the Highlander Folk Montel Tennis School in Montel, Tennessee, which became a center for labor activity and then for the civil rights movement. In 1965, West and his wife, Connie, founded the Appalachian South Folklife Center located in West Virginia. Critics accused both of having communist ties. West also continued to write poetry throughout his life, and his writings are often referred to in the academic literature of Appalachian studies. West died on September 29, 1992, at the age of 86. To close this podcast, I would like to end with the reading of some of West the Blessed. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the meek, the merciful, and peacemakers. The persecuted, slandered, and reviled, for they are God's children and shall be found. On the picket line, the peace walk, freedom march, sit-ins, the prisons, wherever the stumbling feet need the dangerous little candlelights of human dignity held aloft by humble hands.